Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I am your host, Wes McAdams. Here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. Today, I am joined by my friend and co-worker, Marcus Stinson. Marcus, I am so glad we're finally finally doing this, brother. I know, I know. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Uh, it feels like it's long overdue, so I'm excited to be here with you. Unfortunately, we're in the same building, but not in the same room today. Next time, th- this conversation that we're going to do today, I, I think is going to be so full that it's going to leave us needing a part two. So hopefully when we do this again, we can be in the same room. Absolutely. I'm all in for that. Cool. Well, we we thought it would be fun to talk about eschatology. And I know that's an intimidating word. I don't even know if I'll use that in the in the title, and the description, uh, as we share this with people, because that's a pretty intimidating word. Uh, but it's a word that's incredibly important. It's one that that we talk a lot about. We talk about a lot as ministers, um, and and I think it's one that a lot of Christians are beginning to use and talk about. Uh, but some people may not be familiar with the term eschatology. So let's kind of define it first, and then we'll kind of walk through what do we mean when we talk about eschatology. So, so Marcus, how would you describe what eschatology means? Um, eschatology uh, can probably best be defined as the area of theology or our thought uh, about God and spiritual things that concerns everything from final judgment to the destiny of humanity, to the fate of, you know, the soul, the person, um, as we've come to think of it. And um, pretty much everything that could be bound up in that sort of end of this age, beginning of the next age uh, bucket, I think is probably a really, a really good way to define it um, just from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's perfect. I think, I think end of an age or especially things dealing with because the word eschaton has to do with the end. Uh, but we have to be like you, like you were, you're being really specific about what are we talking about? The end of what? Um, the end of, of some sort of an age. Um, and, and that implies that we're in an age and that there is another age to come. Um, and, and that in and of itself, even the way we're talking about that is, I think for some people would be a unique way of talking talking about the age to come or talking about the end of an age, but it really shouldn't be a unique way of talking because that's, that's one of the ways the Bible talks about it. Um, So I thought it'd be fun to talk about some of our favorite eschatological terminology. What, 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 how do you like to talk about the age to come? Um, Sort of the, the popular vernacular, the popular terminology is go to heaven. Um, Uh, but but the more I study biblical eschatology, the more I learn what the the picture that the Bible paints for us of the age to come, the more I'm uncomfortable with that. And it's it's ironic that we we use that terminology a lot. Go to heaven when we go to heaven, when we all get to heaven, when all of God's singers come home. You know, we use that that terminology a lot, especially in our songs. But people might be surprised to know that that term, that phrase, go to heaven is not found in scripture. And so that's just not how the Bible talks about our hope and our anticipation. So, so let's kind of talk about our favorite eschatological terms. What are your favorites, Marcus? Oh man. Um, I love that you said that and, and kind of led into, to this part of our discussion that way, because, um, one of my favorite terms that I've come to think of that age to come, uh, would be Eden. 
Um, mm. I think the more um, that I've dug into this, um, the more that I find that that Genesis one picture at the very beginning of our journey is what is pointed to by scripture in the Old Testament. It's what Jesus is pointing to. Um, I think the terminology you mentioned, where is that? I, where does that idea when we all get to heaven come from? It, it, it might come in part from Matthew. Matthew, the, the terminology that he uses talks a lot about the kingdom of heaven will be like this mm-hmm. and the kingdom of heaven will be like this. And um, it's represented a little bit differently with nuance in the other gospels. But um, that sort of idea of the kingdom of heaven being equated with us going to heaven, I think maybe comes from there. Um, but by the time you get through the Lord's prayer, he's talking about on earth as it is in heaven. So there's this almost coupling and pairing of God and man and his will being done both where he is now and on earth where we are. And by the time you get to revelation, that Edenic vision, that Edenic purpose from the beginning is fleshed out fully again. And so when I think about eschatology now, Edenic is what comes to mind that, um, God will be, uh, in the midst of his people and he will be their God. Um, as it was in the beginning when things were very good as it were. So that's, that's one of my favorite ways to think about it. Yeah. I love that. And I love that. That's exactly the way if, if somebody was to look at the way that our Bible, and I love that in God's providence and God's wisdom in the way that the the Bible has even come to be organized in the very first book, the way the story begins and the very last book in the last chapters of the last book, in the way that the story is is concluded, the hope of that, the end of the story, the wrapping up of all things, the, the picture is incredibly similar. And you have to see that John is painting a picture of that heavenly city that comes down out of heaven. Mm-hmm. And, and John sees this heavenly city that's coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. And the similarities between the city of God and Eden are so, they're just on every single word, every single sentence of that picture. And so, yeah, I love that you, you, you draw in mind to that Edenic picture. And it really gives us something, something I want to say tangible to, to look forward to, something that we can kind of wrap our, our minds around. Growing up, I always had this picture of the age to come or our hope or what we're anticipating as floating on a cloud, this ethereal <laughs> idea that's that's just non non physical, non tangible. Um, but again, I mean, we could talk about where that comes from and the the dualism and and Plato and and all of those things. But you know, I I, I made a list one time of just different different ways that Scripture talks about our hope and our anticipation. We've already mentioned the age to come. First uh, Timothy four eight says the life to come. Um, mm. it, we could talk about it. So so those are sort of terms that are eschatological time. So an age or a life to come. But then there's an eschatological event. There's the resurrection. There's mm. the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's the coming of the Lord. These are all direct quotations. The day of visitation. The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Um, and then, then when it does talk about a place, it says things like the world to come, Hebrews 2, 5, the new world, or the Greek term is the palingenesia, uh, Matthew 19, 28, the city that is to come, or one of my favorites is 2 Peter three thirteen, the new heavens 
and the new earth. Right. And so there's, it's amazing how, how rich the, the rich vocabulary that the new Testament gives us, but it's, it's interesting. And you and I've talked about this before that, that our songs don't necessarily reflect these terms. Like all of those terms are biblical terms, yet we trade these biblical pictures and terms for ideas and terminology and vocabulary that we don't really find in in the New Testament. Any thoughts on the way that we sing and and the words that we use in our songs? Yeah, uh, that's that's been an interesting thing. That it's it's almost one of those situations where once you come to see something, you can't unsee it. And I think if anybody is listening to or watching this, and they they heard you say a few minutes ago. You know, the, the idea of just going to heaven when you die really isn't found anywhere in the New Testament. That would feel shocking. And the reason why you might be taken aback by that, like I was, is because we've been singing it for so long. And the way that we sing and we worship in that way is emotional. It's something that we teach each other with. It's something that we're edified by. It's something that uh, connects us to God in, in those moments of praise and We've been singing about the mansion over the hilltop for a long time. We've been singing about flying away in glory, that ethereal cloud floating that you were talking about. Um, And it's almost kind of wired into us this idea that the age to come is really nothing more than an ethereal song service in the sky. And part of what is put forward in scripture is that, yes, when we pass on from this existence in life. We will be with the Lord. Paul talks about that very directly, but there's a lot more there. And I think that we leave a lot on the table with that story if we stop there. So I think that the songs that we sing, um, they, they, they live in us. They pop up. You find yourself humming them. Uh, different things remind you about them through the day. And we just wind that cord tighter and tighter and tighter. We may never even notice that this isn't how the Bible talks about the age to come. This isn't what Paul was expecting when he's writing in various passages. This isn't what John was seeing when he's receiving the revelation and putting it down. Um, It's not what Peter's talking about when he's talking about a new heavens and a new earth. So, um, yeah, I think they play a major role. There are are unspoken creed of sorts uh, that we come to live by. Hmm. Yeah. And maybe maybe it's as you were talking, it, it struck me that that so much of our focus is on where I go when I die. Right. And right. and and that certainly is an important conversation. And I know it's a conversation that's important to a lot of us, but it's not it doesn't take center stage in Scripture. In Scripture, there is there is some things that are said about that ethereal existence, that disembodied experience that we're all going to have when we die, that comes in between my personal death and the resurrection of the dead. So there will be a point in time, unless the Lord comes back first, where I am a disembodied spirit, where I am living in a in a floating city, so to speak. I, I do have an ethereal experience or live disembodied life. Now, consciousness unconsciousness, whatever, that that's a whole other conversation. But I think for so many people, that's their only hope and anticipation. Whereas the Bible's emphasis, really, it, it decentralizes that conversation, and it centralizes the resurrection of all the dead, that there is coming a day where we will all experience a re-embodied experience where our 
our mortal body is raised from the dead. And maybe it's because we're so individualistic. And so we just care about where do I go when I die? Um, whereas the Bible's emphasis is on when God redeems all of his people and brings us all back uh, to live forever in in a, a immortal, imperishable body. So let's kind of talk about the practicality of all of this. So if there yeah. is a day where all of these things are going to happen, there's going to be judgment, there's going to be resurrection, there's going to be a, a new city, a new creation, a new heavens, a new earth. A lot of people would say, oh, Marcus, Wes, I mean, yeah, I don't know about all of that. All I know is that something's going to happen and, you know, and we'll all figure it out when it happens. But let's not let's not get into the weeds and all these details. In fact, they might even think, well, it's kind of divisive to talk about all of this stuff. Like, what difference does it make? It's going to happen. We're going to experience it. Whatever happens, happens. And let's just not worry about it. Let's just focus on being Christians. So what what difference does it make practically what we believe about the eschaton, about the end of things? I think it makes a huge difference. Uh, I haven't always thought that. Um, I think that when I was younger and, and coming up, one of the things that I also heard a lot was, we're not really sure what heaven is going to be like. So just imagine the best thing possible. And that's what we're going towards. Um, but somewhere caught in between the confession of Jesus' resurrection and even the belief that we will be bodily resurrected, just kind of confused with that idea that maybe that's only for a second and then we're not really resurrected. We're spiritual now and we're just doing this thing in the sky and leaving it there. Um, that is something that did not get enough thought, I would say, from me early on. And I think it was just an aspect that I assumed there wasn't a lot on in scripture. It seemed to be something that maybe we just weren't given any information for. And I don't purport to have the market cornered on eschatology or what this is going to look like, nor do I think anyone can or will. I do understand and expect there are going to be things about this age to come that we are going to and what God is going to do and how he is going to do it that we just can't know. Um, the secret things do still belong to God. That's a given. But I got to tell you, brother, we've been lured into leaving so much on the table, not just for what is coming, but in this life when we accept a really watered down uh, oversimplified eschatology. It's as if we're going to take some of the greater promises that are actually on the board given to us and pretend to go along without that affecting us, uh, our calling or our mission in this world, if we just go without them. Um, I love how Tim Keller has put it. He says, humans are irrevocably hope-shaped creatures. And we are. What that means is that what I believe about the future even the ultimate destiny of humanity and myself and my loved ones and my neighbors will affect how I see myself, how I see them, how I behave, of the decisions that I make. It has everything to do with how I'm going to live my life now. And I really can't help that. I mean, we could pretend that what we believe about the future doesn't matter, but humans are not static characters. We don't actually approach any other facet of our life in this way. So what I believe about the future has dictated the hobbies that I chose as a kid, the classes that I took in school, the major that I chose. And that changed and changed again. And the effects, you know, of the dates that you decide to go on and the outfits that you choose for those. And it determines whether you stay in a job or leave, or there's no area of life that's unaffected by what we believe about our future and how that plays a role in what will be. So if you show me someone who believes that they can do nothing and don't know anything about the future that they're going to or the trajectory of that, I'll show you someone without hope. 
which is contrary to the gospel message. It's very likely that someone without that hope is struggling in a lot of those different ways that we just talked about, because we can pretend that this wouldn't matter. But in my view, having a full understanding and hope and expectation of, of what awaits the children of God, the inheritance that is spoken of in scripture again and again and again, is paramount to doing what Jesus came to do, what he says he came to do, to give us life and that we might have it more abundantly, not a shadow of what it's supposed to be. So I think it has everything to do. Um, uh, that might be a, a little bit long-winded way of saying, I think it's actually very important when for large chapters of my life, it was something that I just kind of, you know, hoped I lived well enough to see one day without any understanding of what that was going to be. So um, it's a big one. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree. And I, I think that the more I think about the way scripture teaches us to live, the ethics of scripture, the more I realize how closely it's tied to the eschatology of scripture and how things like turning the other cheek, leaving vengeance up to God. I mean, this is at the heart of everything Jesus teaches his disciples to do is to is to live this kind of a life where we go the extra mile, we turn the other cheek, we love our enemies. The only way we can do that ethically is if we believe that there is going to be an ultimate judgment. If evil right. people will will be held accountable for what they've done. I can't encourage someone in good conscience. I can't encourage someone to turn the other cheek or to love their enemy if you're just turning a blind eye to evil. But that's not what we're doing. We we aren't turning a blind eye to evil. We're saying we trust God with the evil that exists in the world. And so I think that there's a practicality even to living the meekness of Jesus, living that meekness out, loving our neighbor and loving our enemy is only possible if we believe in a final judgment. If we don't believe in a final judgment, then we believe I have to give my enemies what's coming to them now, because if I don't give them what's coming to them now, then they'll never get that. <laughs> and, right. and we don't believe that. We believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so we don't have to dole out vengeance. We don't have to dole out um, all of the consequences because God is going to give those out. I, I think about another one. I, I told my wife not too long ago, and then I read a book where the author made the same claim. I, I told my wife, I said, I I'm really not comfortable with the idea of a bucket list. And one of the reasons I, I struggle with things that are, are very Western, very uh, first world, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and presenting them as if they're, they're Christian, because I think, well, what would my brothers and sisters think about this? If they lived in a third world country, what would my brothers and sisters have thought about this? 200, 300, 500, 700, 1,000 years ago, how, what would they have thought about this? And because we, we're first world Americans and we have the ability to travel and to see all of these wonderful things and experience all of these things, because we have that ability, because we take vacations and we have disposable incomes that are, are massive, comparatively speaking, we make these lists of things that we want to accomplish and see and experience before we die. And it, it makes us into people that don't rest well and that don't take care of our neighbors well, because we think I have to accomplish all of this stuff before I die. I have to see all of this stuff. Whereas if we truly believed 
that in the age to come, in the resurrection, that the meek will, as Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. I don't have to experience all of that now, that I can spend my life now resting well, working well, serving well, loving well, and trust that in the age to come, in the resurrection, I will not have missed out on anything, but that I will inherit everything. And that that does, that changes, practically speaking, how we spend our life right now. I agree with that so much. I think um, for some reason, uh, the passage in Hebrews uh, sticks out to me and has for quite some time that it's the fear of death along with death itself that keeps us enslaved, that all our lives we've been subject to it. And along with that fear of death is all of the stuff that I'm going to miss out on, all the stuff I'm not going to get to experience, all the stuff that is better than what I have that ruins contentment, that ruins our, our, our ethic and morality for why we do what we do. When you first started talking there, I, I was in so much agreement because it's not just seeing justice done that, that we can't live this life content knowing that there will be a judgment and that all will be put right. So I don't have to retaliate. It's also the aspect that if I don't have a firm grasp of judgment coming, justice being done, grace being available for the children of God, a new age, the resurrection, um, being a joint heir with Christ. If I don't have a good grasp on that, man, it makes it hard for me to even do the right things for the right reasons. Because I may be put in a situation where I feel like I ought to retaliate. And even though I choose not to, it might not be because I know and trust that God is going to put things right. It might be because, man, if I do, this probably wouldn't be good. And that might keep me from getting to heaven. So even in that moment, it's a self, it becomes a self-serving motivation to try and stack up our good deeds um, high enough to get us to you know, that ethereal cloud that we were talking about before, when in actuality, no, we don't have to retaliate because we are an imager of God, because we are being made into the likeness of his son, and because we trust and believe and know that on that day, when the new age is fully, not just inaugurated, but comes to pass and takes hold, all of that's going to be taken care of. So um, there's a lot in every day, both the things we choose not to do and then the reasons why we choose to do what we do. Uh, that's very practical to these kinds of discussions, I think. Yeah, and that's so good. And, you know, and, and something else you, you just brought up about the, the kingdom being inaugurated and then coming to its full fulfillment. This is another aspect of eschatology. I think we have to talk about that Peter in his Pentecost sermon he uses the term eschatos in saying that these are the last days. He says that when the Spirit came, that, that this began the last days in the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of the Messiah and the pouring out of the Spirit. He's quoting from the prophet Joel, and he says, this is what Joel talked about, that in these last days, in the eschaton. And so really, what, what I think that we're experiencing now is this overlap that, in a sense, the eschaton, the age to come, the, the, the final era of, of the world, has already begun in the resurrection of Jesus, and we have already stepped into it as we've been resurrected with him in our baptisms. But this evil age, the present age, continues, and there's these sort of overlapping ages between the, the present evil age and the age to come. And we're sort of living 
We're living in both eras, both ages at the same time. And that's why this conversation affects in practical terms everything that we do, because we live a very different life even than the Israelites did, say, under the reign of David, because we live in the reign of the Messiah. We live in a different age than than the one in which they lived. And so believing that we have already stepped into the age to come, but then there's going to be a final fulfillment of that, and it's going to fill the whole earth and the whole creation, that all creation will be redeemed, Romans 8. Um, it does. It changes how we live in that sort of already and not yet kingdom. I love the application there. Um, and going back to the reign of David, because what's interesting to me is that the concept of the resurrection on which all of this really hinges. And if you, if you read Paul, uh, he's not going to pull any punches on that. Um, and he actually links in Romans 6, which you're talking about our baptisms going through death, just like Christ did. And a picture of that, he continues on into Romans 8, of course. But if you look at maybe one of the uh, linchpin passages for the resurrection, Daniel chapter 12, um, where it speaks of a mass resurrection, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and some to everlasting life. Um, prior to that, resurrection on a mass scale like that, not really spoken of. There was a Jewish concept of resurrection, and it was going to be everybody at the day of the Lord, like Daniel's talking about. The way that the event of Jesus's crucifixion and then resurrection shaped the way that the Jewish disciples would come to understand what it meant that the kingdom of God was at hand, would totally redefine what the coming of that kingdom looked like and reorder their entire lives and understanding of their eschatology around that is just profound to me. And I think maybe part of our problem has been we have been so far removed from that original Jewish context and what we have adopted, unfortunately, is a little bit more of what that Hellenistic, pagan um, mm -hmm. idea of what the afterlife is going to be. Those things don't really mix too well together. They believed there was an afterlife, Hades and all of that. But essentially, they didn't believe in a resurrection concept. So when we start talking about the end of all things in the new age, we've got a, a full re repackaging almost of the original Jewish idea fulfilled in Christ, inaugurating something brand new, a whole new idea to the entire world. And I fear that if we don't lean into that, we actually get lured into accepting something a little bit less that was already present and running rampant in the world at that time when the resurrection occurred. So um, I love that. I love that you bring up that aspect. I just want to take a short break from our Bible study to tell you that if you are enjoying this discussion, you might also enjoy my book, Beyond the Verse. You can find the audio version of the book at radicallychristian.com slash audible. That's radicallychristian.com slash audible. And if you're not already an Audible subscriber, you can actually get my book for free when you sign up for a free trial. So go to radicallychristian.com slash audible. Now back to the Bible study. Yeah. I mean, it's just such a, a beautiful, holistic concept that, that really touches every area of our life, that, that the world was created good 
a good creation and that sin corrupted creation, but that God is making all things new again and that he yeah. is going to rid his creation of sin and that 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 process of ridding his creation of sin has already begun in us and that we are his new creation. All of those who are in Christ Jesus are part of that new creation already. And and then on the day of resurrection, it will be fully made new and our bodies themselves will be redeemed. But you touched on something with that Hellenistic, Platonic, uh, Greek philosophy, pagan philosophy idea. And that's one of the aspects of that that really permeated the world at that time. And I think continued to even in what would be eventually known as like the Gnostic sects of of Christianity. These Gnostic groups were very dualistic in the way that they thought about things. They thought, well, the ethereal things, the immaterial, non-material, spiritual things, even though I don't like using spiritual that way, but the spiritual things, the non-physical things are what's important and that the physical things, the material things are bad. And, and some even believed in two different creators, a creator of the material things that was bad and a good creator that created the immaterial things and that the good creator wants to free us from the material world. And really, right. I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of Christians today tend to think in those dualistic terms and think physical bad, spiritual good, non, non-physical is good. But when we actually read the New Testament, the, there isn't that, that separation, that dualistic way of thinking that when you feed your hungry neighbor, when you clothe widows and orphans, when you care for the hurting, you are doing spiritual things, that there isn't physical bad and spiritual good. It is that when you do good works in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Spirit, you are doing spiritual things. And it really allows us to to approach theology and also the way we live our life in a very holistic way where we're touching people in real tangible ways. I I agree with that. Um, Very plainly in the New Testament, um, I think we'll probably touch this here in a little bit, um, the iconic passage in First Corinthians chapter 15 even ends the entire discourse about the resurrection and eschatology and things to come by saying, therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. Do what you are called to do, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And he seems to be tracking on what we talked about, that the fact that in Genesis 1, the creation was good, And like you say, I'm afraid a lot of us have just decided, well, it's not good anymore. And someday it's getting thrown into the dumpster anyway. So we're just trying to do some good while we're here on the way out because, you know, it's not really worth much anyway. Um, That's not something that Paul agrees with in the way that he writes. Uh, In Revelation uh, 14 and verse 3, I think, John is talking about how uh, he's seeing that and their works do follow them. Those saints, they have rested from their labors. Their works matter. So practically in what we are doing right now, in this inaugurated age, in this overlap period, the way we carry ourselves, the way that we handle ourselves with our neighbors, the way that we even treat this planet that we have been called to steward, all of that actually does matter. And if we accept the weird kind of Greek dualist approach, I mean, we can 
really quickly find ourselves in a place where we're overly apathetic and we don't care enough about what is going on here. So, um, yeah, I think, I think that's really important for us to re-examine and lean into. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it, it bears mentioning for those that maybe aren't super familiar with the way we're talking about these things that, that I do believe that there's going to be some sort of a cleansing fire. I believe that there's going to be a transformation. I believe that in the same way that my resurrection body will be the same but different than my current body, that all creation, I think this is exactly what Romans 8 teaches, that all creation will experience that same sort of transformation. There's a lot of things about my current body that I I hope change and are transformed in the resurrection body. Uh, there's, I, I hope I have more hair. I, you know, I hope I'm, I, I hope there's a lot of things that are different, but, Me too. <laughs> uh, but, but there's going to be a transformation to the body and there's going to be a transformation to the creation, but there also has to be a continuity as well. And otherwise it's not resurrection. It's not resurrection. If the new body isn't a resurrected, transformed version of the current body. That's not resurrection. It's something else. Um, and so the, the new creation has to be in some way, I believe, connected to the previous creation. Um, but, but as you said, believing that and knowing that that continuity exists, it for Paul, and I think for Jesus and for all of us, it should mean that what we do now for people, for our neighbor, for creation, that this work really does matter because people matter. The earth matters. God's creation, they really do matter. I would encourage anyone who's thinking about these things to key in on what you just said and realize that this sort of understanding of what the future looks like for God's children, for Christians, is why the resurrection won in that Hellenistic world. It's why. Because it's so much richer and deeper and more rewarding and more exciting and more powerful than what we accept if we leave it by the wayside. No other worldview is giving people the hope that they retain their individuality, which is very important to us, we know, sometimes overly important to us. Eastern religions, you're going into the karmic stream or you're going to go be a drop in the, in the bucket of the ocean of Ethereum out there um, if you're a Buddhist. And, you know, or you're eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And that is just it. Like that's the end of the road, which was also prevalent in, uh, in that time as well as it is today. But only, only the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits, only the resurrection of the dead into a new age, into a new heavens and new earth means that what I'm doing now actually matters and who I'm becoming now in those acts, the journey that I'm taking, the growth that is happening, even the pain and the difficulties that I endure and overcome and come through, it's the only way that it actually means something. And if you just stop and pan back and look at that, the big tapestry, the big story that you were talking about before, it makes everything else that we look at in scripture, everything else that happens and everything else that we experience that much more vibrant. It's truly beautiful. And it's, it's awe-inspiring. Um, yeah. 
I hope we I hope we spend a few minutes jumping into to Romans eight here in a little bit as well because I found no response to that in in light of what we're talking about now. So yeah, um, I don't know if you've got that on the docket or not, but surely I'd be more than happy if we do. Yeah, let's let's do let's talk about Romans eight because that's one of my favorite passages, and I don't know how before I I came to a, a fuller understanding of biblical eschatology, I don't know how I read Romans 8, other than just to say the way I hear some people say things like, well, that's just figurative. Well, saying something is figurative doesn't dismiss it. It doesn't take it away. If I say it's raining cats and dogs, of course I'm being figurative. Yes, I'm using figurative language, but it means something. What does it mean? It it has real meaning to it. And so, um, yeah, let's talk about that. And, and, And I think that what Paul is saying here in Romans 8, as well as what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and why as you said, resurrection is at the heart of all of this, is that it means that God wins and mm-hmm. death loses. That in, right. in so many people's eschatology, because everybody has an eschatology, uh, even an atheist has an eschatology. Like you said, if, right. if you believe that when you die, you're just dead and that's the end, then that's your eschatology. Mm-hmm. And, and in every other eschatology, death wins. That you you may go and, and float off and have a you know whatever kind of afterlife you think you're going to have, but you're still dead, and your body is still dead, and death has still claimed victory over your body. But the Christian eschatology is the one where God wins and death loses because of what Jesus has done, because of His work in the Spirit, because now already Marcus and Wes and all of God's people have been brought to life in the Spirit that. Our mortal bodies, this is what Romans 8 says, that our mortal bodies will be redeemed. And so God wins. Death loses. Death does not have final victory over my body or over creation itself. So what in Romans 8, you know, really sticks out to you on this? Man, uh, there's a lot. Um, I think that uh, I heard it put one time before, and it resonated with me. It's always stuck with me, um, that... Romans 8, as well as 1 Corinthians 15 and a couple of other places, give us a really clear picture of what you were just speaking about, death not winning, but that the Christian worldview is that we go through death like Christ went through death, but right out the other side into life again. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, well, that just sounds like a cute way of, you know, talking about the resurrection, like, you know, we already all believe, but Really, it's it's more profound than that, because if you think about what we've accepted in many cases, is something that we call a victory over death, but not really. We've kind of substituted just another way of talking about what death is for eternal life as it's presented in Scripture, right? So if you just think about the idea that if we were to just die and there is no physical resurrection, and that is not the, a characterization of the new age to come, just a spirit being of some kind, you are already that when you die. You haven't actually reversed death. There is no great reversal. There is no victory. There is no coming out. There is no resurrection. I'm just still dead. And yeah, if we really pause and think about the implications of that, uh, what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15 is really important. In Romans chapter 8, I felt kind of like you because I'm not sure if I just dismissed this before. I mean, um, I don't and haven't found any way to reconcile 
what Paul is actually saying here without just deciding to dismiss large portions of it and chalk it up to kind of the earlier discussion of, can't we just say that we'll find out what Paul meant someday? Um, There's really nothing that I can do with it. In Romans chapter eight, starting in verse 11, talks about our mortal bodies um, being brought back to life through his spirit who lives in us. He's not done though, because in verse 18, he starts uh, talking about what you were mentioning before, that the present uh, creation has been subjected to futility, but it's eagerly longing and groaning for the revealing of the sons of God to be set free from its bondage. And I struggle to do anything but what Paul is actually saying there with it, because he's linking the bondage of creation with the bondage that we experience to sin and the fall and everything that happened as a result of that all being undone. He says in verse 22, we know the whole creation has been groaning together until now. That's all of us and that it's awaiting its redemption and we're awaiting our redemption of our bodies. Verse 24 is really strong to me for in this hope we are saved. All of that coming together. So in one paragraph, Paul is speaking about a renewed cosmos, eagerly waiting for its renewal to be freed from bondage and futility. I love the word there because it's been subjected to it. It's been put there unwillingly. And Paul says here that it's not only groaning and waiting for this to be over, but that's inherently linked to what God is doing with his children, with us and his kingdom. Those of us who are in Christ waiting and groaning for this renewal and glorification as sons and daughters. So he's gone further and links this to the inheritance that we are looking forward to. And maybe if that part wasn't there, it'd be easier to reconcile. But all taken together, it's absolutely unmistakably profound. It's powerful. It's the kind of expectation that would cause an entire people group and the Jews who are the least likely to believe in a personal resurrection to reorder their entire understanding of what it meant for the kingdom of God to come and for the resurrection to be and what that new age was going to be. And it's also the kind of understanding that caused the Hellenistic and pagan world to be overturned uh, for people who believed in the afterlife, a resurrection from Hades being impossible to reorder their entire world around this news that you actually could go through death and you could come out the other side. And more than that, Jesus has done it. And more than that, you will as well if you're with him. So Romans 8 is deep. There is so much there. I I love it. And it seems like there's something new coming every single time I revisit it. So um, yeah, I feel feel exactly the same way. And I mean, because, because it's victorious and and, and I think to get back to the theme of the practicalities of eschatology, it's that there is endurance in hope, that when we hope, we have endurance, that you can't endure present struggles without hope, without hope that this isn't always the way it's going to be. But I think that's one reason. I think that's one reason why people living in first world countries, people that haven't experienced much heartache and persecution and oppression and struggle, when, when we haven't experienced the same types of struggle that the first century church endured, then we just don't even really know the, the necessity of endurance. But when you're, when you're experiencing this kind of struggle and when people are being drugged from their homes and murdered and your things are being stolen and, and there is all of this 
hurt and pain and suffering and oppression and persecution, then this message that it isn't always going to be this way and that Satan and his minions do not get to claim victory over God's good creation, that Mm. death and Hades and Satan and all of his works will be thrown into the lake of fire and that they will die and perish and God will redeem his creation and that God wins and that God has victory over death and God redeems his creation and his people from their current state of affairs. And that, that hope gives people endurance that, that I think we rob from people when we're just giving them a message that says, well, you know, we're all just waiting around to die. And when we die, then it, then it gets better from there. It's like, no, 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 death doesn't win. Stop giving people a message that death has the final say. Death does not get to have the final say. Jesus does. Amen. Um, there is a much deeper picture that we're able to paint um, when we're sharing the good news. If we slow down and take into account all of the inequities that people are facing in the world today, that we're called to be an agent in the writing of, um, and every time we do, it's an evidence of the kingdom being inaugurated. This is what happens where God's people go, where his kingdom is. Um, but infirmity as well. Um, it started to bother me a little bit. Not, I don't know if this is shocking to say. It doesn't bother me in a way that I, I feel like I want to confront somebody and correct them on this. But whenever I hear um, of someone who is ailing or dealing with a chronic condition that just isn't going to get better, maybe they have a, a physical disability or, or deformity or something of that nature, someone says, hey, you know, in heaven, you won't have to worry about that because, you know, you won't have this broken body anymore which in one aspect is true, but it stops so far short of the fact that, no, you're going to have your body, but it's going to work the way that it was always designed to work. Yes. Yeah. I heard a story of a young lady and um, she was a paraplegic and someone asked her in the course of uh, a discussion that they were having, what will you do when you see Jesus? And her response was, I'm going to weep, I'm going to kneel, and then I'm going to dance. And it was a really shocking thing for me to hear. But then I thought, how beautiful is that picture? Like, she she gets it. She gets the promise. She's She is dialed in on this. And what a hope for her to continue to be everything that she's called to be now. Because she knows what she's going to uh, when we are there on that day, so to speak. But for everybody... There's one of those old hymns that uh, we sing about heaven. Uh, You probably remember it, How Beautiful Heaven Must Be. And it talks about all the different various aspects of heaven. And one time I I was assigned to this hymn to talk about it at a lectureship. And what I had to do at that time was break it down and explain how all of these different physical aspects that are touched on in the song were not you know, probably accurate and we're not sure what it's going to be like, but just imagine the best that you probably can. One thing that stuck out to me in the preparation for that uh, session, though, was one of the most beautiful things about heaven is that God's children will be there not less than they are now. Like you're not getting a raw deal by having delayed gratification. You're You're not missing out like we talked about before. 
But when Paul talks about mortality being clothed or putting on immortality, he's talking about us becoming and, and being more than we actually are now, almost as if we're a shadow of our future self at this point in time, right? An echo of what we're going to be, as opposed to the idea that we're slipping away and being less of something what we were, mm-hmm. just kind of this spiritual version of ourselves. But every single child of God will be perfectly as God foresaw them to be, planned for them to be, without the infirmities, without the anxiety, without the crippling depression, without the uh, everything that we see when we look in the mirror that weighs us down, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of those things put right more than you've ever been before. That's what the new heavens and the new earth, that's who populates it. That's who's in the kingdom. And for me, that's one of the most beautiful things. I personally don't remember a day in my life when I haven't found something wrong with myself or been forced to confront something wrong with myself. And it's kind of crazy to try and envision a day where my my daily habits won't be dominated by, well, I really messed that up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, or or just how broken and busted I am as a person. That's the hope. That's what we're yeah. going to. God's picture I love of that. Us. And I yeah. love I love the way Paul puts it. It reminds me of what you said. The way Paul puts it in Second Corinthians uh, chapter five, I think, where he's talking about that that our desire isn't to be unclothed. So he he kind of puts it as if when we die, we're our disembodied spirit is kind of a naked spirit. And and yeah. he says, but in the resurrection, we will be further clothed. We will have even more clothing. We will have an even better body. This body that we have now is like a tent and it's going to be renovated so that it becomes a permanent dwelling place. Uh, yes, there will be a time when our body is disembodied and or our, our spirit is disembodied and we're a, a naked spirit, but that's not our hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. In the resurrection, when our body is brought up from the grave, it will be transformed. And as you said, it will be exactly what God wants us to be, what we hope to be. So I, we, we got to wrap up, but uh, we could do this all day, I know. But <laughs> but that's why that for Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection of the dead, and he doesn't mean just Jesus' resurrection, but the resurrection of the dead, plural, the dead people, the, the general resurrection when all people are raised, that's a non-negotiable. As you said, I think so perfectly, Marcus, there are so many things we don't know. And, and there's so many details that are, that are given to us in figures of speech and figurative language. And, and we don't know. We don't know exactly what it's going to be like. We just know we want to experience it. But there are things that are non-negotiable. The resurrection is non-negotiable. The resurrection of bodies from the grave is non-negotiable. Uh, for Paul, he says, if we don't believe that, then everything that we're preaching, everything that we're doing is is useless. So in this next couple minutes, as we wrap up, what what for you do you see as presented in the New Testament is non-negotiable as it pertains to eschatology? Oh, this is a this is a deep one. There's there's a lot. I think that it it is a little bit intimidating when you first kind of start to walk down this path and you're willing to, to unwrap it a little bit and sit back and say, okay, maybe there's more here than me just floating off in the sky. And how many of my other beliefs that I've just come to accept 
or come to just decide not to confront and deal with really get challenged and really get moved along down the road. Um, for me, what we just discussed in Romans chapter eight is non-negotiable to me. Um, and not in a, and I'm not saying speaking in a salvific sense, like I would be about the resurrection. Um, if we deny the resurrection, then we have no hope at all. If we deny the resurrection, then Paul said that then Christ is not raised. Right. Um, but for me to have a working understanding of what that means in first Corinthians chapter 15, I need Romans eight now to help me make sense of what we're going to and what we're doing. And I certainly need both of those to make sense of what Peter is saying when he talks about the new heavens, and new earth. Um, revelation forever, since there is so much debate about interpreting the book lived in a little bit of a different place for me and still does because we kind of take that um, at times to say, I already know I'm going to be in over my head here in many instances. So I wasn't really shaken too much on a lot of the symbology that's there in Revelation. But there are some very, very clear uh, theology that connects to these passages too. I think basically I'm with Paul on if there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. If we say that Christ is not raised, we misrepresent God. And then I'm in more trouble than just not being sure what's going to happen when I die or where we're going to be when we die. So I think that's, that's the big linchpin for me. I think being willing to, to being willing to, to look myself in the mirror and look at the text and just be honest and say, yeah, there's going to be a lot here that I'm not going to get, but this much is clear. And whatever the implications of this are, I need to be willing to accept those and move forward with those um, instead of being afraid of them. So I don't know if that fully answers your question with what you were looking for, but um, for me, first Corinthians 15 is, is non-negotiable for sure. Romans chapter eight is yeah. non-negotiable to me for sure. Um, yeah, I would say, and I, I think you're, I think you're exactly right, brother. And I think, I think that that's what we have to, we have to be a little bit dogmatic here as it pertains to, are we presenting a story where Satan and death win or where Satan and death lose? And, and that's why resurrection, that's why I, I, I think the way that Paul puts it in first Corinthians 15 in the first like 25 verses of that chapter where he talks about not, not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but the, the turning over of the kingdom to the Father and yes. God being all in all. This is what is non-negotiable about eschatology is that God is all in all. God rules supreme over all things. All of his enemies are destroyed, which include not only evildoers, but Satan and his angels and death and Hades themselves are destroyed. Death loses. And when we say things like, well, this person died and now they have a new body and they've gone on to their reward, I get so cringy because we're actually saying that death gave them a victory. And I mm -hmm. deny that emphatically. Jesus will give them the victory when he raises them from the dead and he destroys death. I want to tell grieving parents and grieving spouses and, and grieving children, your loved ones 
if they are in Christ Jesus, will be resurrected to live forever. And the death that stole them from you will be destroyed and that God will have victory over that death. And it's just a matter of time before God is victorious. And I think we have to be very careful that we're not unintentionally, of course, unintentionally proclaiming a a watered down, diluted version of the gospel that is really is really heretical. It really presents a God who loses his creation to sin and death and corruption. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe that God and his creation and his people will be victorious over sin and death. Amen. I don't think there's a better way that that can be put at all. Um, end things, ultimate hopes. That's that's the gospel. That's the message. That's the news. Um, and that's what's been inaugurated. So um, I agree with you there, brother. That is the message we should be bringing. Um, God wins. Um, yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well, brother, this has been so much fun. I, I look forward to doing this again with you sometime. Let's definitely. We'll talk soon. Thanks, brother. Thank you so much for being part of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. I want to give a special thanks to Travis Pauly and to our McDermott Road Church family for making this podcast possible. As always, we love you, God loves you, and we hope that you have a wonderful day.